We are living in a national emergency. We may not have known it 24 hours ago. We do now. Oh, we knew it 24 hours ago. Some of us knew it 24 months ago. Just say. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Glad MSNBC is not the feeling that something right. Take your time. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe. On the internet, on several excellent affiliates, including the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com thank you very much for joining us today coming up shortly we will be joined by a longtime former federal prosecutor um, with hopefully some insight for us on what if anything we can learn from the uh, from a prosecutorial perspective if you will regarding special counsel Robert Mueller's probe into any coordination between team between team Trump and Russia Uh, As based on the way the indictment against 12 Russian military intelligence officers on Friday was written and how uh, the timing of that indictment may or may not affect other elements of the investigation, which has so far resulted in more than uh, 100 federal charges against more than 30 American and Russian individuals and three Russian companies. That's a lot of witches right there. Yeah. A lot of witches in that hunt. It's important to keep reminding people that, yes, this is happening. This is going on. There have been indictments despite the lies from the White House and the Trump administration and Trump himself. Ah, lies from the White House and the Trump administration. I'm sure I have no idea what you're talking about. That was, of course, Desi Doyen. She will join us uh, in a little bit also for the latest Green News report as uh, summer heat exacerbated by global warming continues to take a toll and in several different ways that folks don't often think about. I think that's fair to say in your report. That's a good tease. And uh, by the way, at the same time, uh, you will also uh, cover many who have been longtime science deniers now sort of, kind of, coming around in uh, several different interesting ways as well. Sort of, kind of. So there's that. Um, All right, but first... 
Donald Trump's director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, a former Republican U.S. senator from Indiana, issued what alternates Chris Souza describes as a stunning rebuke of President Donald Trump's uh, President Donald Trump following his uh, conference with Russian President Vladimir Putin. On Monday, during the press conference, Trump sided with Putin over his own intelligence agencies on what Sosa describes as the now-settled question of Russian election interference. I'm not so sure it's all that settled. I believe it's I believe it's settled as to whether Russia attempted to interfere in some fashion, what form and fashion that interference actually fully took. That remains much less clear, at least in my opinion. Uh, but uh, Special Counsel Mueller's indictment of 12 Russian military intelligence officials on Friday certainly put a, quite a bit more meat on the bones of that argument. Uh, Coates, again, Trump's own director of national intelligence, said in his statement on Monday, quote, the role of the intelligence community is to provide the best information and fact based assessments possible for the president and policymakers. We have been clear in our assessments, he said, of Russian meddling in the 2016 election and their ongoing pervasive efforts to undermine our democracy. And we will continue to provide unvarnished and objective intelligence in support of our national security. An unnamed official added, uh, according to CNN's Jim Sciuto, that the decision by Coates to respond to the president following internal discussions after that press conference, quote, was not cleared by the White House. To that end, I suppose it is stunning, as Sosa describes it, but that it was little more than a statement, frankly, followed up by no action. For example, um, Coates, you know, could have resigned in objection to what happened at that press conference. Several former intelligence officials, including former FBI director James Comey, former CIA director John Brennan, have called uh, on, quote, patriots, including members of Trump's national security team, to resign in objection to Trump's behavior at the summit. Now, that would have been stunning and meaningful. Um, but the fallout, nonetheless, from Trump's uh, seemingly, how should I, compliant obsequiousness? Is that is that redundant to say compliant? Obsequiousness? No, actually, I don't think it uh, is uh, to uh, to uh, President Putin in Helsinki. The fallout continued on Tuesday. You had more and more Republicans expressing various forms of disappointment, if not calls to action. Over the president and the U.S., uh, president of the U.S., taking sides against U.S. law enforcement, intelligence communities, and even uh, Republicans on the U.S. Senate and House intelligence committees, and uh, speaking in favor of Russia's continued insistence that they did not attempt to manipulate the 2016 presidential election. That, after Trump stood side by side with Putin at that press conference on Monday, um, where even Putin, it seemed, had no problem selling Trump down the river a little bit as Trump tossed his own intelligence agencies and advisors under a bus. 
Uh, this was uh, after Trump had insisted that Russia and Putin had no reason to take sides on his behalf in his election against Hillary Clinton. Uh, an idea that Putin actually contradicted when he said, uh, yeah, he actually did support Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. All of that was just days after Mueller had filed that damning indictment against those 12 uh, military officials, Russian military officials, said to be acting at Putin's direction, alleging 11 different felony counts related to meddling in favor of Trump and the GOP during the 2016 election. Early on Tuesday, despite all of this, Trump took his usual defiant stand. He refused to back down in order to let us all know that the summit with Putin and the NATO summit before it at the end of last week actually went very, very well. Trump tweeted, among other things today, uh, quote, while I had a great meeting with NATO raising vast amounts of money, he raised no amounts of money. Uh, I had an even better meeting with Vladimir Putin of Russia, he said. Sadly, it's not being reported that way. The fake news is going crazy. Yes, it's the fake news that's going crazy, Mr. President. You nailed it. Even as Trump continues to insist that his behind-closed-doors, two-hour, one-on-one private meeting with the Russian president went very, very well, thank you, even better than his meeting with NATO members, fellow Republicans uh, grew more and more uncomfortable, it seems, with what had transpired, uh, many of them coming out with statements, if not decrying Trump, then decrying Russian attempts to interfere in the U.S. election and uh, offering their support for America's intelligence community as they do. Nonetheless, uh, many of them avoided criticizing Donald Trump directly. Almost all of them have neither taken any real action at all nor called for any such action as a counter to the president or to serve as any kind of real check on him in any substantive way. Uh, Dan Pfeiffer, a former uh, Obama advisor, uh, listed a number of things that Republicans could do instead of, quote, sending sad tweets. He said they could pass legislation to protect the Mueller investigation. They could subpoena Trump's tax and business records to see what leverage that Russia may have on him. They could pass tougher sanctions against Russia that don't let Trump wriggle out of them. There was some actual action taken at lower levels of the GOP, uh, if not in, in Congress. At least two state and local level Republicans have resigned or left the Republican Party over Trump's performance at that press conference with Putin on Monday. A county Republican Party chair, Chris Gagan, uh, serving in southeast Ohio, he announced that he was resigning. He gave his announcement uh, via Twitter on Monday, explicitly citing Trump's remarks as rationale for his departure, saying he could no longer support Trump's agenda as a Republican Party leader. Good for him. Uh, in Iowa, a former state lawmaker and retired Air Force pilot, Ken Reiser, said he was leaving the Republican Party because of Trump's, quote, erratic and misguided leadership on foreign affairs, according to the Des Moines Register. Good for him as well. By Tuesday afternoon, it seems the pressure just became too much, even for this president who never backs down on virtually anything. 
Tuesday afternoon, in uh, remarks at the White House, Trump said that he had misspoken a day earlier in Helsinki when he, uh, you know, appeared to take the word of President Putin over the conclusion of his own intelligence agencies on Russian election meddling in 2016. Uh, That was uh, just him misspeaking. Trump said, uh, working from written remarks... And I guess someone had to write this out for him to make sure, Mr. President, here's what you need to say. Uh, Anyway, working from his written remarks, uh, he said, quote, he accepts the findings of the intelligence community after all in regard to Russia, claiming that after reviewing his remarks at the press conference in Helsinki on video, Uh, where he had said that he, quote, saw no reason why it would be Russia who interfered in the election. That was actually him misspeaking. He meant to say that he saw no reason why it wouldn't be Russia who hacked into the DNC and uh, Hillary Clinton campaign emails, released those uh, to the public. Uh, And, as Mueller detailed in his indictment, planted malware on the computers of state and local election officials Uh, and stole some half a million private voter records from at least one state. Here's here's a little bit of uh, Donald Trump's remarks at the White House on Tuesday. So I'll begin by stating that I have full faith and support for America's great intelligence agencies, always have. And I have felt very strongly that while Russia's actions had no impact at all on the outcome of the election. No, we don't know Let that. Let me be totally clear in saying that, and I've said this many times, I accept our intelligence community's conclusion that Russia's meddling in the 2016 election took place. Could be other people also. Uh, there's a lot of people out there. Uh, there was no collusion. Now, I have to say, I came back And I said, what is going on? What's the big deal? So I got a transcript. I reviewed it. I actually went out and uh, reviewed a clip of uh, an answer that I gave. And I realized that there is a need for some clarification. It should have been obvious. I thought it would be obvious. But I would like to clarify, just in case it wasn't. In a key sentence in my remarks, I said the word would instead of wouldn't. The sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why I wouldn't or why it wouldn't be Russian. Oh, that's what he meant. Just to repeat it, I said the word would instead of wouldn't. And the sentence should have been, and I thought it would be maybe a little bit unclear on the transcript or unclear on the actual video. You think? It's unclear now. I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia. Sort of a double negative. So you can put that in, and I think that probably clarifies things pretty good by itself. Totally clear. Thank you for clearing that up, Mr. President. He went on and on uh, like that for a while, even though he had written his remarks out or somebody wrote them out for him. He couldn't stick to them. And uh, I don't know if he made things better or worse with any of that. Uh, He went on to pledge that his administration would aggressively try to prevent Russian efforts to interfere in the upcoming midterm elections in November. So feel better. 
Now, uh, before we get to my guest today, uh, let me clear up one thing on which I did not misspeak on Monday's broadcast, to my knowledge, but uh, about which I want to be crystal clear since I've heard from a few folks on this point following the show. I am in favor of better relations with Russia. I'm not actually bothered at all by Trump having met with Putin, though the fact that it was in private uh, with no note takers or other witnesses beyond the translators, uh, that does trouble me a bit. But I'd very much like to see better relations with Russia. So I have no problem there. And uh, at, but at the same time, the indictments on Friday were quite detailed and damning as I have said, and uh, a real American president would take this opportunity to at least demand a response from Russia as to these allegations that were put forward by his own intelligence and law enforcement uh, community. The fact that Trump didn't do that, no matter what he's trying to clean up now, the fact that he didn't do that, that is disturbing and sends a very clear message, as I see it, uh, as if one was needed, that the U.S. will not actually take any real action in response to the manipulation of our theoretically democratic elections. That is a very disturbing message to uh, to send, as I see it. And I think Donald Trump has sent that message very clearly that well, we're not going to do anything. Uh, you know, no matter what he tried to say to cover his tracks uh, on Tuesday afternoon. Again, that's just one reason why public oversight and vigilance of our elections is so important. We can't count on election officials. We can't count on intelligence officials months later. We certainly can't count on a president, a president who's benefited by any action, if there was any, any manipulation, uh, to do anything about this. Uh, and so this is now, of course... It's always been important. It's always been why I have been yelling and screaming about this for so many years. Um, but it has really, at this point, as democracy continues to disintegrate in this country, it has uh, never been more important than it is right now, you know, before we get to the upcoming midterm elections. So uh, I just wanted to be clear about that, because I know there's a lot of people saying that, uh, oh, you know what? Uh, Democrats, they want to start World War Three. I do not want to start World War Three. I do not join them in that if that's what they want. But that's a different issue than demanding that Russia or anyone else who is alleged to have manipulate our elections be held accountable and at the very least explain themselves. And that's something that Donald Trump did not ask for at all in Helsinki uh, on Monday. All right. Anyway, uh, there may be uh, more indictments ahead from special counsel Robert Mueller. We'll take a quick break here. Come back with a former federal prosecutor to help us understand what may what we may be able to learn uh, on that score from Friday's indictments. And, oh, yeah, another indictment that has taken place since then with much less fanfare. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Baking rocks in the hot sun. I fought the law and the law one. I fought the law and the law one. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. There was another noteworthy thing that actually happened on Monday. The day that Trump appears to have shocked the nation by standing next to Vladimir Putin in Helsinki and undermining his own intelligence and law enforcement agencies to question their assessments of Russian attempts to interfere in the 2016 election, which uh, as of an hour or so ago, he has already begun to walk back. But uh, the other thing that happened was that the Justice Department on Sunday charged a Russian national who, along with her mentor, allegedly aimed to set up back-channel communications during the presidential campaign between Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin. That uh, indictment was announced on Monday for Marina Butina, also uh, known as just Maria. She was arrested on Sunday with conspiring against the U.S. as a foreign agent. She appeared in court in Washington, D.C. on Monday during a sealed hearing, according to the Justice Department. She'll be detained for three days until her next court appearance. According to unsealed court filings and some reporting by CNN and others, Butina and her mentor... Kremlin-linked banker Alexander Torshin spent three years trying to make inroads with U.S. political organizations and operatives to develop a more conciliatory approach to Russia among American politicians. Their primary avenue of influence appears to be the National Rifle Association, according to the court filings. Torshin had bragged both publicly and privately that he and Butina were the only Russians who were also lifetime members of the NRA, and they leveraged their relationship with the NRA's leadership to foster relations with Republican Party leaders, other American politicians and business leaders. They even used their connection to allegedly try to establish a covert communications channel between then-candidate Trump and Russian President Putin. The NRA has still offered no comment since the indictment was announced on Monday of Sunday's arrest of Butina. AP reports that, according to court documents, Butina met with U.S. politicians and candidates, attended events sponsored by special interest groups, including two national prayer breakfast events, and organized Russian-American friendship and dialogue dinners in Washington with the goal of, quote, reporting back to Moscow what she had learned. Butina's arrest, says CNN, is the latest dizzying development related to Russia in recent days and re was revealed only about three hours after Donald Trump's press conference in Helsinki, in which he uh, sided with Putin rather than his own intelligence agencies regarding election meddling by Russian spies 
in 2016. The Justice Department says Butina worked at the direction of a high-level official in the Russian government who was not named in the indictment but is believed to be Torshin. Uh, he was previously a member of the Russian legislature and was later a top official at the Central Bank of Russia. Torshin also fostered extensive ties with gun rights groups in the U.S. and tried to use his contacts to arrange a meeting with candidate Donald Trump during the campaign, according to the legal filings. There is no evidence he was actually successful there, though Donald Trump Jr. testified to lawmakers last year that he briefly met with Torshin at a dinner with a few dozen officials from the NRA. Trump Jr. says they spoke for only, quote, a few minutes and did not talk about colluding with the Russian government. Butina's arrest comes on the heels of Mueller's move on Friday to indict 12 members of Russia's military intelligence service over a hacking and influence operation. But unlike those charges, Butina is actually here in this country, so will likely face court proceedings. Um, and potentially a trial. Unlike the 12 Russians who were indicted on Friday, they will most likely never be apprehended or tried by the U.S. Because of that, the case could be interesting to watch, the Butina case, for what it may or may not reveal regarding Russia's alleged influence operations and Team Trump's involvement, if any, with that operation. The charges against Butina were filed by prosecutors from the Justice Department's National Security Division, not Special Counsel Robert Mueller's office. But they offer yet another glimpse into the wide variety of what U.S. law enforcement and intelligence officials describe as methods Moscow employed to try to influence the U.S. political climate ahead of the 2016 presidential election. The charges also reveal, in case there was any doubt, that U.S. prosecutors are not yet done, not by a long shot with their investigation into what happened in 2016. That, in stark contrast to those on uh, Team Trump, like his attorney Rudy Giuliani, who tried to paint Friday's indictment of the Russian intelligence officials somehow as good news for the president, as those folks tried to argue that it proves there was, quote, no collusion between Trump and Russia. In fact, the indictment proves no such thing. And according to former federal prosecutor Michael Stern, may even suggest quite the opposite. Writing at Daily Coast following the indictments on Friday, Stern argues that from the way in which the indictment was written, it actually offers evidence that there is still much more to come from the special counsel probe. Joining us now to explain why he thinks there are more shoes to drop in that investigation is Michael J. Stern. He worked for 25 years as a federal prosecutor for the U.S. Department of Justice in both Detroit and here in L.A., spending three years as an assistant district attorney and working on approximately 100 jury trials before leaving to work for the U.S. courts in representing indigent defendants in federal prosecutions here in Los Angeles. Michael J. Stern, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Brad, thank you for having me. Thank you for being had. Michael, you wrote after the uh, Friday indictments uh, of those 12 Russians that for all intents and purposes, Mueller just indicted Russia. But that to the extent people take the fact that this indictment does not charge Americans to mean that no Americans were involved in this crime, 
that that would be a bad bet to place. Is that something you just have an innate sense of following this uh, case as it's been moving along? Or does the indictment itself offer specifics that signal that uh, to you as a uh, former federal prosecutor? Well, actually both, I would say. Um, Initially, uh, you have to realize that the indictment the indictment indicates that there are other people mm-hmm. within the United States, largely believed, for instance, to be a reference to Roger Stone mm-hmm. as an unidentified co-conspirator um, who participated in some of the events that are connected to the indictment. Mm-hmm. And so if I were Roger Stone, I would not be sleeping well uh, for the next several months. Um, but the other thing is that, that innately, uh, based on my training and experience and the work that I did with DOJ, I understand that it's very common to not indict the heads of an organization or uh, some of the higher-ranking people initially, Um, and there's a reason for that. And the reason is that, at least in this instance, Mueller's decision to indict only Russian nationals, all the military uh, defendants that he indicted, will allow him to put together the indictment as he did, allow him to publish the indictment and continue investigating without having to go through the very time-consuming process that comes with discovery and answering motions to dismiss and motions to suppress and other similar motions that would come if the defendants were in the United States. So he was able to essentially have his cake and eat it too. He was able to set forth the indictment and charge the Russian members of the conspiracy Um, But because they're not in the United States and the likelihood of them being extradited at all um, is slim, he's able to continue his investigation without the pressure of having to deal with those defendants making appearances in court, etc. So it's my sense of things that there was a, uh, you know, a calculation, a strategy on his part in Mm -hmm. doing that. And while I have to say I certainly don't have a crystal ball And while I maintain friendships with a lot of FBI agents that I used to work with, I don't talk to them about their current investigations. But there's a lot that's available in the public domain that indicates that members of the Trump team were complicit in in the type of activity that the 12 Russians were just indicted on. And before we get to some of those details, uh, Michael, I just want to get a sense, uh, not only, uh, and maybe I'm reading between the lines here on your uh, piece over at Daily Coast, but not only does indicting these foreign nationals who are in Russia who will never be apprehended or charged, uh, that won't keep uh, you know the, the special prosecutor's office very busy because there won't actually be any trials in the near future, if ever. But also, wouldn't uh, a trial like that and uh, discovery motions and so forth, wouldn't that begin also to reveal who else the prosecutor may be looking at uh, in his investigation? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So what happens is once you indict someone, all of the information that you've been able to successfully keep secret as part of the ongoing investigation before the indictment um, is fair game for a defendant to say, listen, you indicted me, you brought these charges against me, in order for me to defend myself, you've got to tell me everything that has anything to do with the charges that you brought against me. And so 
there's often um, a battle that goes on between the prosecutors who are looking to indict people up the chain of command mm-hmm. in the future um, and their duty, uh, and the duty that's imposed on them both by law and by the court uh, that they're appearing in front of, to disclose enough information so a defendant can effectively defend himself. And that will not take place here because the only way that that would be triggered is if the Russians were in custody and they needed the information to prepare for trial. So Mueller can effectively keep that information secret while he continues to work his investigation into either additional Russians who are involved in the criminal activity or, more likely, from my perspective, probably the Americans who are involved in the criminal activity. With that in mind, why not wait until essentially everything is good to go, sort of indict everybody uh, in the conspiracy at once? Does, uh, Does he gain anything from doing these lower-level cases like these uh, Russians who are, you know, unlikely to ever actually play into uh, into the actual investigation in a public way? Why why not wait until the end to uh, indict them as well? He could have. And, and let me say this. There are certainly times when I had everything very clear and wrapped up, and I had my agents figure out where all the defendants were that I wanted to take into custody and I wanted to charge. And we would indict a single case that had, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 people. So that could have been done, but it's not necessary to be done. And there's a benefit that I think Mueller gets in doing it the way that he did. And here are a couple of the potential benefits that I think he gets. Probably the most important from my perspective is that you have a large number of people. You have, I don't know, 33, 34, 35% of the American public, the American voting public, who are Trump supporters. And there's a process that I think that Mueller is going through to get not only members of Congress, but more importantly, the public to understand that what has been alleged, the Russian interference with the 2016 presidential election has actually occurred. And so if you release the indictments in the way that he's done so far, he's released two. Initially, he indicted 13 people uh, for their participation in a social media campaign mm-hmm. to influence the election. And then just last week, he indicted these additional 12 people in the very specific efforts that were made to hack into and obtain the um, email correspondence from members of the Democratic Party mm-hmm. uh, in order to influence the election. If you progressively indict people in this way and the public comes over a period of time to come to the understanding that, in fact, what has been alleged by many Democrats is, in fact, true, is, in fact, not only simply being alleged by Democrats who are unhappy about the election results, but by an independent prosecutor who happens to interestingly be a lifelong Republican who has had enough time to go through and find evidence that was sufficient to convince a grand jury that these events occurred, I think you can create a sense in the larger public, including uh, the Trump-supporting public, that what's been alleged is actually true. And I think it is easier then Mm. to take... uh, the additional uh, indictments that may be coming, that I anticipate will probably be coming, that will include uh, Americans, and add those people in once you get the larger public to come to a full appreciation and, and more importantly, an acceptance of what the allegations are as actually being proven, at least to a grand jury so far. Uh, yeah, so there's a, a public relations element, I guess, uh, to these there indictments is, as well. 
That's exactly right. I mean, that's a way of, of putting it. There's a public relations element that's going to make it a less bitter pill to swallow once you convince, uh, you know, once you convince the larger public that what they've been saying all along occurred and what mm-hmm. Democrats have been saying all along occurred did in fact occur. Then you add in essentially the flesh to the skeletal um, indictment, which included only Russians, and it's less of a shock, I think, to the public uh, when you then say, which should be shocking to us all, Americans uh, conspired with or cooperated with a foreign adversary to affect the 2016 presidential election. Are there other details? Uh, you had cited uh, Roger Stone. Uh, he's not uh, mentioned by name, but he's he's referenced as an unnamed uh, uh, person. Um, he's a Trump confidant, longtime GOP dirty trickster. And then you also had organizations uh, that were unnamed, that were cited but unnamed, uh, one of them believed to be WikiLeaks. Are there other details in a case like this that a prosecutor purposely leaves out, either until the indictment is, is further along in the discovery phase or while uh, sharing evidence before the trial that is, uh, you know, th- that they will generally keep nowhere to be seen in the initial charging documents uh, like the one filed on Friday? Yeah. So, for instance, um, the fact that Roger Stone was mentioned, you know, not specifically by name, but mm-hmm. by context, and most people, I think, know that it's Roger Stone that's being referenced. There was also an additional congressional candidate who, again, I'm guessing is going to have a very uncomfortable um, nights, a series of nights for the next few months. Right. Um, but, yeah, there, there are certainly people that you are going to indict that you don't want to tip off are going to be indicted. And so I, I think that beyond those couple of instances that we just discussed, Mueller did a very good job of keeping under his hat who it is that's going to be indicted next. Now, we can obviously speculate who some of those people may be, um, but, you know, as a prosecutor, you wouldn't want to say to someone in advance, by the way, at any given point in time, someone's going to be coming to your house to arrest you, take you to court, and make you face trial on these charges. So it's very typical for prosecutors to keep um, secret those people that are going to be indicted so, number one, they can arrest them. And so, number two, the people don't get a heads up in advance so they don't destroy evidence that you might otherwise be able to seize as a prosecutor. And uh, speaking of evidence, there's a lot of specific details uh, in the indictment on Friday, uh, but not as much actual supporting evidence for where those details uh, come from, uh, you know, for example. So we just have to sort of assume for the moment that there actually is evidence in support of all of that. Is is that normal in in all indictments where they sort of uh, don't actually share the evidence until later in the trial? Uh, or is that uh, only more so in conspiracy cases where there will be other elements to be mopped up along the chain of command in the future and they, they don't want to show their hand uh, down the line? It's perfectly, it's perfectly normal. It's very often that you simply make the assertions of fact mm-hmm. that you think you're going to be able to prove a trial. So on a particular day, this particular event occurred, there was an email that was sent to this location, that email was designed to infiltrate a particular computer, it succeeded in infiltrating the computer, based on that infiltration, X type of information was later obtained. And, and the reason that you do that is because 
the requirement only is that you provide defendants with notice of what they're charged with. Mm-hmm. In the indictment, you don't have to say, and let me explain to you how I'm going to prove these charges. Now, pragmatically, sometimes it happens. So, for instance, if you arrest someone with 10 kilos of cocaine in their car, you describe that they were arrested with 10 kilos of cocaine in their car, and it's self-evident as to how the evidence is going to be proven, uh, how, you know, how the case will be proven. Um, but the way that the, the prosecutor will prove the case uh, is typically not laid out in the indictment, only what will be proven. And then what happens, of course, is what we talked about earlier, which is discovery. So the indictment may be 20 or 30 pages long, like it is here, but the discovery could be literally tens or hundreds of thousands of pages of material. And if a defendant then goes through those pages of material, he should typically be able to figure out how it is that the government is able to prove the specific allegations that were made in the indictment. Does the uh, Butina case that I mentioned uh, at the top of the segment here, um, where she has been this uh, Russian national who was working apparently with the uh, National Rifle Association, uh, she's actually here. She's actually been arrested in theory. Uh, she will face uh, some sort of uh, of trial or plea agreement, or I guess we don't yet know. Uh, Robert Mueller's uh, the the special counsel is apparently reportedly not handling that themselves. Uh, it's a different uh, section of the Department of Justice. Uh, d- will that you know serve to reveal information that the special prosecutor may also be looking at as far as? Uh, means and methods for uh, for what the prosecutor is up to? Um, as a prosecutor, as a former prosecutor, I'm going to say, hell, I hope not. But as a realist and a former prosecutor who knows how these things go, it may. And so what will happen is that, um, and this is not unusual, defense attorneys who have connected cases, and sometimes cases get indicted separately even though there's an overlap and and here i don't know how much overlap there is because i'm no longer with doj i can just look at the indictments but you can bet that what will happen is that the defense attorney who's representing butina will ask for very broad discovery and some of the things that he's going to ask for will probably although again i don't know for sure will probably have some impact or may have some overlap on what Mueller is doing and so there's going to be um, a battle, my guess is, uh, in which the defense attorney is asking for a lot of information, and the prosecutors on the Butina case are going to be saying, no, you don't need that information to defend the specific case that you've got, and that case uh, is isolated in and of itself, and if we reveal that information, it could negatively impact other investigations. And my guess is also that there will be some type of discussion between members of the Mueller team and members of the Butina team if, in fact, the discovery request is made, as I suspect, which is going to be very broad by Butina's defense attorney. I've got just a minute or so left here, uh, Michael Stern. Uh, you write that you would do, uh, quote, everything you could to wait until the end of the investigation to charge the head honchos of the conspiracy when you uh, were working on similarly sprawling indictments. Are you able to assess from what we know so far, from what Mueller has done, uh, from uh, the various indictments, are you able to uh, assess how far along that conspiracy uh, may be, uh, the work that Mueller is doing? If, if, in fact, there is one here with Americans, can you tell how far yet we are along from that uh, indictment? 
you can't tell anything definitively, although it's been my sense from the first indictment that came down with Mueller in which he charged the Russians for participating in the social media campaign. It's my sense that Mueller knows exactly where he's going and that what he's doing is dropping breadcrumbs until he gets to the loaf of bread, which I believe will include Americans. How many Americans it will include, exactly what they'll be charged with, who they will be, I don't know. Although what you know is already available in the public domain relating to Donald Trump himself and Donald Trump Jr. and you know some other members who are of his family and other campaign um, staff, you know, makes it pretty clear that under ordinary circumstances there would be a viable case. Uh, for the type of charges that Trump has brought against the Russians to, in fact, be brought against a lot of Americans. You uh, Back in February, you wrote uh, that after, the, uh, after Mueller had released his first uh, indictment against that group of Russians, that he would soon bring an indictment that charged the uh, hacking of the DNC emails. You also predicted at that time that the charges would be against Russians and not members of the Trump campaign. So it looks like you have been correct so far in your predictions. Michael, you got any more you wish to share as far as uh, what and who uh, may come next and what we might expect from this investigation as it moves forward, presuming it's not stopped? Uh, uh, Yeah, let's hope it's not stopped. Again, I don't have a crystal ball. But I think, that, I think that members of Congress and the public and commentators need to start pussyfooting around the idea that you need some type of, of you know, roadmap to collusion or conspiracy between Donald Trump and very close members of his campaign and Russians in order to bring charges against them. And that's just not the case. But to the extent that you did need a videotape, I, I don't think we can ever forget the July 27, 2016, uh, you know, videotape of Donald Trump looking into the camera and saying, Russia, if you're listening, this is what I want. I want you to steal Hillary Clinton's emails, and then I want you to publicly disclose them. And, and when I say pussyfooting around, I mean that you you. You know, any other person who made that type of request to a foreign adversary um, in such a direct way and then had it come true and then utilized the benefits of that illegal activity. Because if you remember, you know, there wasn't a day pretty much that went by that Trump didn't direct people while he was on the campaign trail to look at the WikiLeaks uh, disbursements of stolen emails. Uh, under ordinary circumstances, if, if someone who was not the president of the United States did that type of thing, and there was that type of evidence in combination with the other very publicly available evidence that exists now, and, and I could go over it, but you know we've all heard it a million times, that type of person would ultimately be indicted. Now, whether or not Mueller makes the decision that it's appropriate to indict a president because there are some legal issues as to whether or not the Supreme Court would allow such an indictment, mm-hmm. an indictment of a sitting president, or whether or not he makes a referral to Congress for impeachment, or whether or not members of the uh, GOP convince Trump that he's you know, been had and the goods uh, are uh, you know, sufficiently stacked up against him that he needs to resign. You know, I I don't know if those things will happen, but if it weren't Donald Trump, if it weren't a sitting president, I'm comfortable saying that as a prosecutor, an ordinary person with the type of evidence that exists would in all likelihood be charged with a crime. 
Michael J. Stern, former federal prosecutor. You can now find him at sternlawpractice.com. He is very smart in that he is not on Twitter at all, he tells me. I'm quite jealous of that. You can also find his work at dailycoast.com and his uh, latest latest article on all of this headlined, Mueller has dropped two shoes. I'm betting there's a third. Michael J. Stern, greatly appreciate you uh, joining us and adding insight to all of this. Uh, Hope you don't mind if we bother you again in the future. It's been my pleasure. Feel free. Thank you. All right, take a quick break and we will come back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. I'm exhausted. It has been a long week, Desi Doyen. It must be Thursday or Friday already, right? I was going to say Monday was about three months ago. Yeah, it kind of feels that way. Uh, All right. Well, you will make us all feel better, (laughs) as you always do, Uh in your latest Green News Report. Governor Rick Scott has declared a state of emergency for seven counties in Florida, and it's all because... Toxic algae blooms choke Lake Okeechobee, threatening drinking water and more in the Sunshine State. A warm June didn't help matters either. Ohio takes belated steps to curb toxic algae in Lake Erie. Summer night temperatures rising faster than daytime temperatures. Plus, Ireland set to become the first nation in the world to divest from fossil fuels. Go Ireland! All of those reports and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. So if you see what looks like pea green soup or or something in the water that could be an algal bloom, uh, still enjoy a wonderful day on the beach, on your boat, just don't get in the water. Just when I thought it was safe to go back in the water. Algae blooms. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyant, I was a little snarky there about algae, but this is actually a very serious problem. Yes, toxic algae is toxic, and summer's heat means the return of toxic algae blooms. In Florida, Republican Governor Rick Scott has declared a state of emergency in seven counties because a massive toxic algae bloom has choked 90% of Lake Okeechobee, fueled by fertilizer runoff from the agriculture industry. Lake Okeechobee? The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has begun flushing water out 
out of Lake Okeechobee, saying they must flush the lake to lower water levels to reduce the risk of flooding from heavy rainfall. But flushing the algae downstream means that the toxic, smelly, gloppy green goop is headed to Florida's canals, bays, and beaches, impacting tourism, the shellfish industry, and public health. Mm. It's a similar story in Ohio, where after years of resistance, Republican Governor John Kasich signed an executive order late last week directing the Ohio EPA and the Departments of Agriculture and Natural Resources to create new regulations to reduce the amount of fertilizer and manure runoff from farms near the western bases of Lake Erie. We have to constantly upgrade and do what we can, respecting farmers, they're an important part of our system, but to develop a plan that will keep us from having more algae blooms and, and, take, and doing more damage to that lake. Now, the state government says that voluntary steps taken by farmers so far have failed to sufficiently curb nutrient pollution. That's the runoff of phosphorus and other nutrients from farms that is the leading contributor to toxic algae blooms. However, agriculture industry groups criticized Kasich's move, arguing that the solution to these repeated algae blooms is unclear. They certainly have stake in it. Reducing fertilizer use could reduce crop yields, and that could reduce profits. That explains that. Summer nights are warming up faster than days, thanks to global warming, with dangerous implications for public health. That's according to new data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration that found while daytime temperatures are rising and heat records are increasing in frequency, surprisingly, nighttime temperatures in the United States are rising even faster Hmm. at double the rate of daytime temperatures temperatures. Sustained hot overnight temperatures give people no opportunity to cool off, especially in regions that are less likely to have air conditioning because they're not used to summer heat. High temperatures kill far more Americans than any other type of extreme weather. Oh, and by the way, warming nights also impact certain crops that require cool nighttime temperatures. Mm. But some good news, a record number of Americans now accept that climate change is real. An annual survey of attitudes taken by the University of Michigan conducted during that recent record-breaking heat wave that set new all-time high heat records across the country has found that now 73% of Americans think there is, quote, solid evidence of climate change. 60% now accept that human beings have an influence on how the climate is changing. Both of those numbers are the highest in the history of the poll. It seems like the U.S. oil and gas industry is just not that into offshore drilling anymore. The Trump Interior Department on Monday announced the largest ever auction for offshore oil and gas leases on record for the Gulf of Mexico. And that's despite lack of interest and demand from the oil industry to the last lease sale just a few months ago. At that sale, only 1% of millions of acres offered were actually taken up by the oil and gas industry. Finally, a major victory for climate action in Ireland, where the National Assembly has voted to make Ireland the first nation on the planet to fully divest its public investments from fossil fuels. The fossil fuel divestment bill passed Ireland's lower house and is expected to pass the upper house and become law by the end of the year. It directs the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund to sell off nearly $400 million worth of coal, oil, and natural gas assets as soon as practical, but within in the next five years. It's the most significant advance to date for the international divestment campaign promoted by environmentalists worldwide. The writing's on the wall. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. 
Find, follow us, and share us worldwide, even in Ireland, on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Green News Report. For you, I have to risk it all. Or at least it should be. There was, uh, Des, one other uh, note we didn't have time to uh, fit into today's Green News report. Japan is really... They're getting hammered by getting extreme hammered weather. In from, all, yeah. Yeah, from, from heavy rain. Remember uh, last week, hundred more than uh, 200 people died. Now in, it's up to 200 yes, in Japan? Yes, 200 people died from, uh, from extreme rainfall that caused flash floods and mudslides. And now just this past weekend, uh, Reuters reports that 14 people were killed by a heat wave that has blanketed mm. Japan. Incredibly intense. Uh, high temperatures are actually now also hampering the recovery from the flood hit areas the week before it's it's uh that's that's how extreme weather works that's how global warming intensifies extreme weather and makes life just that much more difficult unless we act on it well yeah i was gonna say on can you imagine if uh more than 200 i guess more than 214 at this point had been killed by terrorists in japan over the past week or two then maybe the, the somebody might that we do would be something. taking yes, yes. Uh, not only would Japan be taking a response, but America, would, we, U.S. would be uh, jumping in to help our friends in Japan. But, you know, it's uh, global warming. There's nothing we can do about that other than look the other way and um, actually uh, reverse actions that had been taken by this country by pulling out of the Paris Accords. Uh, and everything else. Well, at this point, all we can do is let you know about it, and uh, thank you for allowing us to do so every day. And my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, former federal prosecutor Michael J. Stern, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download them all for free, going back years and years and years at bradblog.com or at your favorite podcast site, wherever you get it from. I hope you'll uh, jump in and leave a kind word or a not-so-kind word, as you prefer. Uh, in any event, both will make it a little bit easier for other people to find us as well. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. I hope you will find, follow, and share me as well there. Uh, and as ever, my thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. You are the wind beneath our wings. You are the, uh, <laughs> the only thing that keeps us going at this point. Um, stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make a one-time donation or make it even easier. Just sign up for an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. We would love to continue to keep the broadcast free for all um and uh so but you know to help us do that if you can sign up for a monthly subscription uh that'll make it a lot easier for us to uh, at least make it through the november elections we are working on it and uh, we thank you for your help all right that is it until we meet again i'm brad friedman good luck world good luck world